Welcome back to Say What Needs Saying. I'm Zach. And I'm Brandon. And today we have with us Dr. Param Srikantaya. <laughs> Param has authored over 35 scholarly papers in management, published or presented at conferences across the world, from the US to Europe to Asia, South America, and Africa. Um, he's currently a professor at Baldwin Wallace University. But before that, he was a consultant at the World Bank, has designed workshops for finance ministers of several different countries. And he was also a former TV host in India, who is well acquainted with energizing a live audience and gives seminars all over, has given TED Talks and several different talks. Param has a doctorate in organizational behavior and several different master's degrees, including psychology, human resources, and business administration. We're absolutely thrilled to have you here on the show with us, Param. The pleasure is equally on this side of the fence, Zach, and I want to thank both of you uh, for inviting me and having me on this show. I'm immensely grateful for the honor. Yeah, no, we're, we're happy to have you. So the nature of our podcast, as we've talked about before, is we try to encourage open, honest, civil conversation about very controversial subjects, about touchy subjects that usually result in arguments or result in anger or, you know, people just not sharing their views because they are afraid of the reaction that they'll get. And so we try to open up the floor to these different ideas. And I think a lot of the things that you've discussed in your seminars and in your lectures really play into these ideas and could really help people to have these kinds of conversations a little better and a little more easily. The, the first question I wanted to ask you pertaining to the concept of confirmation bias. That's one thing that we've brought up in several episodes so far. So confirmation bias is the idea that you already have an idea of what is true in your mind. And if something happens to substantiate that, you are then going to believe that it happened for the reasons that you believed previously. And any evidence contrary to that will kind of be ignored by you or, or by anyone else. There were several topics that you had brought up in some of your lectures that I think play into this that I was hoping you could explain a little bit and, and talk about in more detail. Um, one was the the chattering monkey, and then one was the the idea that people are always wearing different glasses with lenses of bias that play into their perceptions of reality. I was hoping that you could give us an idea of what these two concepts are and, and how they play into people's perceptions of, of the world around them. Thank you so much, Zach, for getting me started on a topic on which I have the highest level of personal enthusiasm. <laughs> Confirmation bias, you can call it selective perception. And it happens all the time. Now, this is a great opportunity for me to describe to you a very fundamental difference between Western education and what used to be Eastern education. Now, in the West, an education, the purpose of an education is to educate the mind, to make the mind more sophisticated, to make it more knowledgeable, to make it more analytical. So when you go to college or school, you're trying to train the mind to make it stronger. Now, very interesting is that in the East, in wisdom traditions like Zen and Taoism and all of these, the whole purpose of education was precisely the opposite. It is not to strengthen the mind, but actually to help you get past the mind. The mind was seen to be a chattering monkey. 
constantly jumping from branch to branch. And it was called the chattering monkey by mystics like Osho because they talked about how monkeys will be jumping from branch to branch. So is your mind. In fact, over the hour, we will be doing this podcast. And I bet, Zach, although you're the interviewer and Brandon, you're listening to me, your mind will wander away to faraway places. Your chattering monkey will take you shopping. It will take you to a vacation. You'll be on your date. And then suddenly you will bring yourself back to the podcast. And even our listeners might notice that. So the chattering monkey is the mind that wanders. It is captured by the voice in your head. Notice that even while I'm talking to you, there'll be a voice in your head that's simultaneously talking to you. And in fact, given the nature of the controversial topics that you discuss, I bet very often the voice in the listener's head is so loud that they can barely hear what the person who's presenting the viewpoint is saying precisely because our chattering monkey is convinced of a certain viewpoint. It's the voice in your head that is interpreting everything I'm saying. And often we think we are responding to reality, but we are making up interpretations and stories. So just like when you listen to a speaker, you're not really listening to what they're saying. You're playing over and over again in your mind an interpretation of what they have said. You have made up a story about them. And one of the biggest challenges is that this inner voice is constantly creating alienation in our relationships. For example, if I say the word teenager, your chattering monkey has made up a bunch of stuff about what teenagers are like, irresponsible, lazy, defiant, rebellious. If I say the word politician, your chattering monkey already has a pre-existing conception of what a politician is like. Now, what usually happens is when we encounter discrepant information that challenges the originally preconceived idea, rather than do the work it takes to rearrange your internal cognitive structure, it seems easily easy to distort the fact. So there's a tremendous desire on the part of the mind to maintain a sense of security and stability. If you have time, I'd love to elaborate with an example of a simple situation that I experienced with my boss. And to show you how, the confirmation bias creeps up when we are least expecting it and is capable of wrecking havoc in our relationships. Notice that when you first join a job, a new job, you take up a new job, you go home and tell everybody, you know, I'm so glad I'm in this new job. These people in my new office are so much nicer than the people in my old office. You know, those guys were assholes and these people are so nice. And at the same time, give it a few weeks, and these nice people will become the most humongous assholes in town. <laughs> How did that happen? How do we destroy relationships? And I have to tell you that I have been married not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. Having been married four times, I have a PhD in destroying relationships. <laughs> and I think given the level of animosity and alienation that has happened in a highly polarized world, like we have in the US now, politically, ethnically, and so on, you guys should be talking to people, someone like me, who's had a, a history of destroying relationships so that we can look at the anatomy of a relationship and what happens. So could I just go ahead and give you this example from my life? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I'm sorry, I invited, I gave myself a big invitation to launch into uh, <laughs> uh, this story because it's made such an impression on me and it's a permanent reminder that I make up assumptions about other people. I really don't know who they are. Even if I know your politics, that's probably 1% of who you are. 99% of you is a mystery. 
In fact, Eastern mystics like Osho remind us that I don't even know who I am. I might think I know who I am, but I can tell you after being married four times, there are times I would wake up my beloved of the moment in the morning, <laughs> expecting to be greeted with love and a beautiful dolphin will come out and dance with me early in the morning. And I'm saying so beautiful. The next morning I'm expecting the same reception and I wake up my beloved and instead of a dolphin, a shark comes out and bites off my head. <laughs> How many of us can relate to this, right? The unpredictability of our significant others. Well, I'm saying that we don't even know the people we live with. I was married to my wife 11 and a half years. And at the end of that marriage, we discovered that we barely knew each other. Now, if I don't even know my wife I was married to for 11 and a half years, and at the end of our marriage, I begged her, I said, please, I've been divorced three times. Maybe there's something you can tell me that I can learn that I've been missing. Maybe I have a few blind spots. And I begged her to spend a few um, hours giving me feedback. She gave me four days of feedback. After we have signed our divorce papers, and you know what? Those four days were the most eye-opening days because my wife and I discovered that we did not know each other despite being married for 11 and a half years. So what did we do? Within a few months, we got remarried. And it's just amazing. And we followed one golden rule in our remarriage that comes from an Indian mystic Osho that I really don't know who she is and she doesn't know who I am. And when I wake up in the morning, I remind myself that this person is a mystery to be embraced, not a problem to be solved. And when I, and we have been married for two and a half years and there has not been a single day when we have had an argument or a problem. And what's shocking to me, think of somebody who's been married 11 and a half years. Don't you think they would probably, if they got remarried after getting divorced, there'd be a lot of the old crap that would come back. But there has not been a trace of any of it. It's almost like, she and I are two completely different people. And I would say the lesson that I've taken away from that experience is to be aware that the stories that your chattering monkey has made up about the other person are just stories. They're based on interpretations. They're not the truth about the other individual. Even if I live with my wife for 11 and a half years, I barely knew 5% of who she is. And I might have judgments based upon that 5%. Please, folks, have compassion for your fellow human beings, whether they vote for Trump or whether they vote for Biden. It doesn't matter. Because the reality is 95% of that human being is a mystery. And unless we can approach each other as mysteries, as works of art, and there is another crucial distinction that I think is related. We have to learn how we can reject somebody's views and attitudes but respect the sacredness of them as a human being. Mm -hmm. We have to start with the fundamental assumption that the other human being is a sacred entity. They are sacred and they always deserve respect. Now you may disagree with my views and you may completely attack my views, but never forget that the other person is entitled to your regard and respect. And every human being on the world is sacred. In fact, they're unique. There's no other human being like them on the entire planet. And if we can learn to embrace each other as a mystery, rather than as a problem to be solved, relationships will be so much easier.
that was the most uh, anthropomorphically fulfilling answer or at least description I've ever heard, at least within this 2020. Um, I'm so grateful. I was just fearful that you'd say that was the perhaps the most humongous burst of smoke anybody has blown up my <laughs> No, but it definitely brings a, a new uh, a new definition to the idea of the mystery machine. So humans, well, as, at least the time of which we're living in, has seemingly perfected communication on a global scale. And it's interesting you bring up your marriage because it's almost the crux of communication of which I asked this question. COVID showed us, at least showed the world, that we can communicate while the world sits still. And, you know, now speaking from your fourth marriage, where exactly do you see humans lacking in regards to communication still, both globally and personally? And how can we move to, I guess, strengthen the idea of communication? Great question. Great question. Thank you. For me, we have made tremendous breakthroughs. We've had tremendous breakthroughs in the technological aspects of communication, like you know, there were times when my father could reach me in my classroom in Beria, Ohio, right? And he lives in, in, lived in India. But the challenge was, once the connection went through and I said, hello, the connection has been made from a technological point of view. But what about from a heart point of view? How do I connect with him? That question, we are infant in the art of communicating with each other we have probably gotten a little worse or probably stayed the same, but we certainly haven't gotten better at it. No matter how many exponential leaps in technology, I believe that communication um, challenges exist. There is a reason that I think is at the root of this. Mm-hmm. At the root of this, according to me, is the fact that we end up processing information with our mind And our mind is very limited in its capacity to deal with complexity. Notice that the mind will always try to explain something new that it encounters in terms of what it already knows. Mm -hmm. So you're always trying to bring the unfamiliar into harmony with the familiar, which means you are never present to something as it is. We think we know reality. Not only do we not know reality, reality is fundamentally unknowable. And our education is giving us so much information. For example, I want to get into this later on the debate. You know, how many of our listeners are aware that of the fact that there is a first world and a third world, that there is a developed world and an underdeveloped world? I would pose to you that there's nothing like a developed world and an underdeveloped world. The very concept of development and underdevelopment is an act of global racism. It's a concept made up by European economists. And by classifying the world as third world and first world, they were able to put the industrial countries at the front of the race and demean the rest of the world as if they had fallen into an undignified condition from which they now need to be rescued. Notice the moment I say first world and third world have created a hierarchy. Who are the losers? The third world. How do they catch up? Well, they have to run as fast as the first world to catch up to the first world. You set up a catch-up game. We have all heard the idea that knowledge is power. But knowledge is power, not in the, just in the nice way in which we know it. I say that knowledge is sometimes used to create hierarchies of, of, by which we demean other human beings. So what happens is that there are many different levels at which you can communicate. The mind is very limited. It is capable of immense distortion. There is another level at which communication has to happen. That is the level of being. Being to being there's a different kind of communication. The tragedy is that the modern industrial world doesn't understand what being is. 
whereas the key to communication lies in embracing the idea of being. So if you permit me, I will just explain what being might mean in ways in which we can quickly grasp it. I got on this call at 7.15 and I'm probably going to pontificate till 8.15 or so, right? Now, I could be on this show for an hour, standing in, I've got some halfway house beer in my fridge. Why did I sign up to do this? I got to get through this and go drink my halfway house beer and watch the latest Borat movie, which I'm dying to watch. Okay. Now, if I come in with that attitude, I could speak for one hour, 15 minutes, but you would all agree that you know that you're in the presence of a man who's like, who really doesn't want to be here. He wants to get the heck out of here. That's my being speaking to you. My mind might be speaking to you with great clarity, but my spirit is dead. I really don't want to be here and you will pick up on it. So it doesn't matter what words are used to convince you. You will not feel the passion. You will not feel the wakefulness. You know that you're in the presence of a person who is really wants to get the out of here. Now, let's say I start the conversation at 7.15 and I want to impress the listeners. So I start quoting books and theories and I start making an impression on you. I want to come across as smart. Who am being is a smart ass. You will recognize that this guy is pathetically trying to impress us. He's an arrogant person. You will know who he's being as a smart ass. So what I will be communicating is not the content. What I'll be communicating is where I'm standing, namely wanting to prove myself as superior in knowledge and analysis to my interviewers and to my listeners. Let's say I start my talking at 7.15 and I'm coming to you from a different place. I'm coming to you from a place of deep gratitude to Zach and Brandon for inviting me. I'm feeling grateful in my heart that these two beautiful young men decided to invite an old decrepit man who can barely stand on his feet, you know, and to come and share his views, which they very lovingly refer to as wisdom. If I were to stand in gratitude and respect for your listeners and say, you know what, I have my professional teacher, so let me see if I can add some value to their lives. How many of you can see that if I were to stand in these three different places, you will hear three different podcasts. It's not based on what I'm saying, but it's based on who I'm being. So one of the greatest challenges for humanity is that we are coming from an invisible space of consciousness, which shapes and determines the quality of the experience we will have of anything. And that is the hidden part of the iceberg. You can see my words, you can see my face, but you cannot see the deeper place of consciousness and consciousness drives everything. It's like the room. If I tell you, look at the room, you will look around and you'll tell me, yeah, I'm looking at the room. You're not looking at the room. You're looking at the walls and the roof and the ceiling. The room is the invisible hollow between the walls and the ceiling and the floor. In the same way, the being of the person is invisible. What is visible is their mind, their thoughts, their bodies, all that is visible. But the most important aspect of what makes a human being a being, why do we call them human beings? Because we have a being. But we live in a world where we are so much focusing on doing and having, doing and having, that we have forgotten the essence of what makes us uniquely human. So what we need to do is to tune into each other's hearts, not into our minds. Osho always used to say there's nothing like peace of mind, 
because the mind is an arguing machine. The mind will argue. The mind is like an attorney. It will always want to be right and it will want to make <laughs> you wrong. And you know, the biggest tragedy, the biggest tragedy is that the mind sometimes gets married to another part of you called the ego. And if the mind and ego conspire, it is the road to hell because the mind is cunning and the ego wants to be right about everything and be right in every situation. So the mind, the mind will salute the ego and say, what do you want me to do? The ego says, I want you to dominate every argument. I want to make sure that I'm right in every argument and the other person is humiliated in every argument. The mind says, yes, sir. And the mind is a very faithful servant of the ego. It goes to work. And with the help of the confirmation bias and selective perception, it will collect all the data it needs to prove that it's right. Notice one very fascinating thing. I will always doubt your mind, but I will never doubt right. my own mind. <laughs> that is the trick of the mind. We are always doubting other people's minds while we never pause to doubt our minds. I once published a paper called Conviction and Doubt and Organizational Learning. It talked about the fact that one of the greatest problems in our society is that we value conviction. We look down upon doubt. So for example, even if you have to elect a president, people are looking at who appears confident and who seems to have strong convictions. Whereas in positions of leadership, do you need people who have strong convictions or do we need people who actually are open to doubt? Because new learning does not happen unless you have the capacity to doubt. But if you have an electorate that will vote you out the moment you raise doubts about yourself, and that wants you to see you confident in all situations, you're likely to make terrible decision-making mistakes because keeping up a state of conviction becomes more important than opening the door to new learning. There's a very interesting article called Teaching Smart People How to Learn. And I make sure that I assign it in every one of my classes because you might think smart people should be open to new learning. How many of us know a smart person who's very closed to new learning? Oh, yeah. You know, so it's, mm -hmm. in, it's fascinating. Why is it that smart people, university professors in particular, you know, the amount of argument they will have. And Osho has a Zen story about university professors that I have to tell you. There was a Zen master who was full of wisdom. A university professor called Param came to him and he said, master, I want to become wise like you. <laughs> I have four master's degrees, the equivalent of four master's degrees and a PhD, but I want to become wise. The Zen master said, hold on, here's a cup. Let me bring you some tea. And he went inside the kitchen. He comes back with a cup of tea. Param, the university professor, is holding the cup of tea and the Zen master starts pouring the tea. The cup is full and the master doesn't stop. He's pouring the tea and three cups of tea are overflowing onto the floor. And the professor asks, what's the point? I'm wasting all this tea. It's pouring out of the cup. The Zen master says, you first have to see your own mind. Your mind is like this overcoming, overflowing cup of tea. It is so filled with your own theories, with your own ideas, with your own knowledge, that there is no room for me to fill anything else in it. So I first wanted to give you an experience of how full your mind is. So if you want to talk to me, first empty your cup of tea and then come back with an empty cup so there is some room in which I can fill it. I'm sorry, I love the sound of my voice so much that I go on too long. No, that's that's a great example, right? Human beings have the unique ability to rationalize anything. And I think because of that, you know, you can rationalize your own perspective, your own ideas, and that then is conflated with truth and fact. 
And so all of a sudden you now believe that not just that you have a good rationale behind what you believe, but that what you believe is actually true and what you believe is actually the fact when really you just have a good way of rationalizing it. And, and that's true, right? I've often had political discussions with people where I disagree with them on a certain policy or what have you. And I fully believe that, you know, you can have a rational argument for both sides of most issues of most ideas. And that doesn't necessarily mean both sides are always right, but you can rationalize it. And so I think that, you know, when people are listening to their own mind, their own preconceived notions, their confirmation biases and all of that, like you said, they focus too much on their own mind, their own beliefs. And, and yeah, it leads to that breakdown, I think, in not just in communication, but in understanding the other person's perspective, for sure. So you've talked a lot about Eastern philosophy and Eastern ideas and how they kind of differ from American or Western ideals. And, and you know, you mentioned education and you mentioned different values that are incorporated in, in the two in different cultures and, and at least elements of those cultures. There's been a lot of talk recently in the U.S. about fundamentally changing the system, whether that's against capitalism, whether that's against different elements of our governmental institutions, you know, whether that's the electoral college or what have you. But there's been a lot of talk about fundamental or systematic change here. And because people are unhappy, people are unhappy with the system. They're unhappy with how things are going, with how they perceive the system to be affecting their lives. Do you think that there's some elements of Eastern culture or Eastern philosophy that are lacking in Western culture or Western society that maybe instead of fundamentally changing our system to be something unique and different, that maybe we can tweak to include different elements of these other cultures or these other ideals? That's a great question. Firstly, let me clarify that um, I'm not uh, knocking the Western system, you know, Western right. civilization, culture, what a great uh, civilization and culture. And I go to the East and I see how much the East needs to learn from the West. And I come to the West and it's my job while I'm here to share some of the few gems of the East. My mm -hmm. idea is that the whole world is a learning community, you know, mm -hmm. and there are certain uh, paradigmat paradigms that make certain things possible in one part of the world that may not make things possible in another part of the world. I, for example, you know, you recognize how much we are taught that poverty is a great problem, mm -hmm. right? Now, poverty is a great problem. But Osho, the Indian mystic, changes the paradigm completely. He says, are you sure poverty is a problem? Why is it that greed is not considered a problem? Have you ever seen a bird that is poor? Now, the point that he was making here is that we often ask rich people what is the problem, and they will point to the poor people across the street and say the poor are the problem. Maybe if we ask the poor what is the problem, they will point across the street and say greed is the problem. Now, notice how many millions of dollars are spent by economists studying poverty. I mean, do you get the irony of it? We spend millions of dollars doing research on poverty, trying to build mathematical models of poverty. It's a joke. How much money do you think is spent understanding greed? None at all. So I would say that, and I'm not necessarily either a capitalist or communist. I'm not a political. I believe in something called spiritual economics which is about understanding the spiritual foundations of the human condition and how economic goals can serve that. 
Now, I believe that we have a distortion in the modern world, and this is captured in a very interesting book called The Great Transformation by Paul Yanni. He says that there was a time where society was the master, and economics, politics, education, all of these little things had to serve society, which was the great master. We accepted that we have every, all of these have to serve society. We need to have a system of government that serves society. We need to have politics, economics that serves society. And he says sometime there was a switch where society became unimportant and economy or economics became the big circle outside, which means that society has to now dance to the tune of the economy. If you and I have to decide what we want to do with our lives, we are not at liberty to do that. We have to see what will happen economically to me if I make this choice. I may be the most talented writer, but I may have to forego a career in writing because I won't be able to make a living. Economics mm -hmm. is now the master and society is the servant. This, you know, people would say is a misplaced sense of priority. Now, I do believe that there are some fundamental philosophical or spiritual issues that have to be confronted. Otherwise, all this talk of changing the system is going to lead us nowhere. Those changes in the system are cosmetic. You change the electoral college system, somebody will find a way to game the new system. How many systems have we gone through in history? If the human consciousness does not evolve you know, to a higher place, changing the systems just does not matter. You can keep changing the systems and you'll run into the same problem. For example, if I'm an egoistic teacher, does it matter if I teach in the Montessori system or the regular public school system? In both places, I'll be an egoistic person who doesn't care for the children. So if you're not going to deal with the fundamental problems of human consciousness, you're wasting your time with systems. For example, one of the challenges that we have is that so much of our uh, modern economy is a debt-based monetary system. The modern economy basically prospers by driving people into debt. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if we have an economic system that drives people into debt, it is based upon depriving people. It is based upon a logic that any island of prosperity has to be surrounded by an ocean of poverty. That is the logic of the system Everybody cannot be prosperous at the same time because the current system, the $20 bill in my wallet has power and value because you cannot possess it at the same time. Right. And we have a system where there is an incentive to keep hunger and deprivation alive because our current modes of production and styles of life require a lot of uninteresting and tedious work to be done at very low wages. Therefore, it makes good economic sense to keep people lacking. And one of the challenges, because when people are lacking, they can be more easily persuaded to do work. But folks, I want you to consider the colossal loss of human potential. I just want to share two stories with you that show the colossal loss of human potential in the current system. Like it is tragic when people are losing jobs and they don't have food on the table. That's the worst imaginable tragedy that you can think of. So when people are employed, we have to celebrate. But we got to a place where we started celebrating just because people are employed. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We stopped asking the questions, are they living their human potential? Are they fulfilling their potential? If I have a job where I have a minimum wage, I could be a genius mathematician or a violinist, but I cannot be that because I have to work a minimum wage job just to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. Can you see what a loss it is to society that my greatest talent could not be used for society's benefit? Right. I want to talk about in India. If I worked, uh, I was in a middle class family. Now, middle class in India and middle class here in those days would mean something very different. So I would say I was well to do. I was middle class. But my family could not afford peanut butter and jelly at the same time. We had to make a choice between either having peanut butter or jelly. You could not have both. That would be considered too luxurious. But still, we were well to do. Relatively mm-hmm. speaking, we would consider ourselves well to do. Now, in a Western context, you might not, right? Mm-hmm. But, and in India, people have servants because people who are so-called well-to-do will have people who are less well-to-do working for them. So in my neighbor's house, there was a young boy who was 10 years old or nine, you know, who worked for the family, who did all the job work for the family, washing the dishes, the clothes, the laundry, the sweeping, the cleaning the house and taking care of the kid in the house who was six or seven years old, mm-hmm. who could go to school. Now, this kid who worked with this family came from a village. He could not afford to go to school. His family had shipped him off to work in the house of this family. So basically, he would earn a few dollars and send it home to feed his parents and brothers and sisters. That was his whole life. This kid was so smart. He was way smarter than me. He was way smarter than the kid he worked for. He never went to school, but he taught himself calculus. And he became the tutor for this family that he worked for, you know, the more wealthier family. And he was the tutor and helped that kid graduate from high school because he taught him all the subjects, although he himself had never been to school. He was 10 times as brilliant as I was, but did the system even give him a chance? There was no hope. I got to earn the equivalent of four master's degrees, come to to the US and earn my PhD. But think about it. What a loss to India or to the world that that kid who probably had an IQ of 170 was never able to fulfill his potential. And somebody like me with an average IQ, all the doors of opportunity opened up for me. Now, think about the band Journey. Now, I might make some factual errors in it. So those Journey fans, please forgive me if if I have my head up my ass and factual errors. But you know that when they um, they had to find a new lead singer, it was Arya Pinata. Yeah, I think uh, Arnold Pinata. I forget his name exact name. So this gentleman was in the Philippines, and um, and Brandon Walam. Uh, could you just get his name right? Could you just Google on your phone and get the lead the new lead singer from the Philippines? He sings for Journey. I remember when that was headlines, where this new Filipino was the, the leader of, uh, was the, yeah. new, the lead singer of Journey. I was like, are you sure? Are you? <laughs> yeah, was it Arnel Pineda? Yeah, Arnel Pineda. Arnel Pineda? Yeah. Yeah, it's pronounced Pineda. Yeah, okay, got it. Arnel Pineda was the Filipino singer. Now, when the manager of Journey was looking on YouTube, he found this gentleman singing in some small club out there in Manila, okay? He's relatively unknown, you know, it's just a street bar. He's singing, he said, this is the guy. Now he flew him to the US, he auditioned, and after a few days, he became the lead singer of Journey. Now if you look at Arnel Pineda's life, 
his mom passed away when um, it's all there in his biography so you know in his in the movie i would encourage you guys to watch the movie his mom passed away uh, when he was a kid of um, you know out of cancer his father didn't have enough money he grew up on the streets he slept in park benches he ate out of the garbage mm-hmm. and finally he was a singer in you know in a small bar in philippines it's just a luck of the draw that he was spotted what are the chances that there would be a youtube video and the manager of journey would come upon it and look at the transformation look at what the world would have lost in terms of talent you know for the lack of opportunity that there would be and the, the pressures so i am concerned about the current system that we have in terms of the colossal loss of human potential we have set our sights too low obviously we have to make sure that everybody has work meaningful work they are employed they are able to feed their family they have their rent to pay and all of that we need that as a base but is that where we should stop should we not be the nobel prize winning economist amartya sen he's from india an example of how you know he looks at economic development differently he doesn't define economic development in terms of gdp or any of the economic measures he defines economic development in terms of two indicators does this society give this person the capability the opportunity and the capability to be who they are meant to be fully does it give them the capability to actualize their potential and does it give them the protection and the capability to protect themselves from certain things that they don't want to be exposed to maybe hunger maybe you know um, all of that so it's more in terms of are we allowing people or giving people the opportunity to actualize their potential and i think we are doing very poorly in terms of that and so i would say that we need a fundamental spiritual awakening and i believe that the problems of american society or of europe or of india at this point have very little to do with politics and economics and i feel very sad that we are trying to solve our problems through politics and economics and our problems are much bigger than politics and economics they have deep spiritual roots mm-hmm. they have roots in the fact that our relationship with ourselves is fundamentally broken it has roots in the fact that our ways of raising children we teach children to hate themselves there's a lot of self hate we don't teach children to love and accept themselves you know mm-hmm. we shame children we create a te- standardized testing where people are placed into hierarchies where we strip children of their confidence we strip children of their creativity and then we tell children to prove themselves yeah. so years and years of our life are wasted in an inferiority complex none of us feels we are good enough and at some level our relationship with ourselves is broken you know what yeah. forget about electoral reform and all that you can do that none of this is going to help a radical shift is needed we need right from a young time in school to raise children to appreciate themselves for who they are to love themselves for who they are if you can teach a child the secret of falling in love with himself you will solve all the problems of the world why because we treat others the way we treat ourselves if our relationship with ourselves is fundamentally broken our relationship with everybody else is going to be broken and so the foundation is broken 
and we are talking about let's fix the furniture in the apartment on the hundredth floor. Right. No, deal with the foundation. The foundation is a spiritual, psycho-emotional foundation that is cracked, and I feel that's where we need to focus. It's almost like uh, I don't know. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's almost like we're, as a society, very focused on the base of the pyramid. So for those that aren't that are listening that aren't familiar, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a pyramid of needs. It's a hierarchy of needs. Maslow was a American psychologist. He was a philosopher that formed a set of needs that he believes every human needs to satisfy in order to be successful, in order to be you know happy and and so on. And it goes from priorities of highest priority as in most pertinent and most necessary in the moment to then more less immediately pertinent but still necessary and still a need and so he ranges them from at the very bottom and most immediately pertinent is physiological followed by safety and so that would be stuff you know you need food you need water you need a roof over your head you know and then you need to be safe and you need to not physically die um, but then he goes on to the next needs are love and belonging is right above that. And then above that is esteem. And then finally, at the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization, which is more along the lines of what you were talking about. And, you know, people doing what they are gifted at, what they're capable of and fulfilling their their full potential as a human and, you know, according to their abilities. And I, I think I agree with you that as a society, yeah, we're focusing much more on the on the base of the pyramid, right? You have to get get by, survive, get to the next paycheck, have enough money for rent, and all of these things. Meanwhile, the other needs are kind of going off to the wayside and being forgotten, or at least prioritized much, much, much less highly. <laughs> I don't know what the solution is, obviously, but I do think that it's a problem that more people can't it can't act on those other needs, at least on some level, right? I understand the argument that some will make that you shouldn't necessarily pursue pursue your passion as a career, you know, maybe that you should focus more on some of the more basal needs and focus on money and focus on, you know, your ability to survive, because that that makes sense. But on some level, you need some outlet for it, whether it's a passion project like a podcast or whether it's some kind of a side job or career. You know, it, it's unfortunate that those top needs kind of get forgotten or, or prioritized so much less highly than the other ones. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, explanation. I think it's very relevant to what we were talking about, Maslow's hierarchy. One aspect of what you were previously saying in regards to just the system itself and just education, because I too feel as if that the future of America will lie in this education. Uh, but from our previous conversation, I guess you kind of awoken a question out of me in regards to my conception of education and the pursuit of it. So I personally like I, your background is so vast in regards to, I guess, didactic learning. And I asked you, you know, how do we, I guess, build upon that to create a better society? And you said, maybe the focus isn't necessarily in the education and the STEM of which, you know, America kind of toils with, that it's in regards to our lack of wisdom and how that's almost untapped within our society. How exactly would you say that we should differentiate education and wisdom in regards to expanding and deepening our own understanding wisdom? Well, how do, how do we, I guess accumulate more wisdom so we can, you know, go about life in an easier way since education isn't doing it. And many different 
uh, ways that we could do that. For example, our emphasis on standardized testing has put such an emphasis on cramming, cramming right. information in order to get through exams. Whereas what should distinguish a good classroom is more of a place of inquiry where people's children's thirst for mystery of enjoying the mystery of life and of nature is ignited, right? So for example, a couple of, so I, I wanna um, maybe give you four short bullet points. So therefore, how do you, so one way of trying to educate people is by giving them information. Another way of educating people is by encouraging their curiosity, encouraging them to stand in the mystery of the unexplained. I feel that we have placed so much emphasis on explanations that we are trying to reduce the mystery of the world through logical or scientific explanation. Our pedagogy must emphasize celebrating the mystery of the world, not just um, you know, trying to explain away the mystery of the world. Notice that the moment you find the answer to the problem at the back of the book, you stop learning. And we punish children for not knowing the answer because we are training people to know the answer rather than stand in not knowing. And if you have to really develop people who are capable of thinking deeply, you have to celebrate the joy of not knowing. And that's when your dance with ambiguity, you know, will open up fresh paths, you know, for you to tread. The second uh, point I want to bring up, I think in terms of reform, is that the Canadian psychiatrist Gabor Mate makes this point very well. It says that in any classroom, there are two dimensions. One is the pedagogic dimension concerning what you're teaching, how you're teaching it, what methods that you use, how you're going to evaluate the learning and all of that, what you would broadly call the curriculum and the teaching methods. That's one aspect. The other aspect is called the socio-emotional dimension. It is, does every child feel emotionally safe in the classroom? Does he or she feel a personal emotional connection to the teacher and to relationships with each other? So that's the socio-emotional dimension. I would agree with Gabor Mate and several critical educational scholars that the US has made, has created a factory-based educational system where our schools are run like factories, mm-hmm. where we are emphasizing the curriculum and the pedagogic dimension so much that we have forgotten the importance of the socio-emotional dimension. Gabor Mate would remind us that if you take care of the socio-emotional dimension, if you take care of the deep emotional needs of children, they feel respected, they feel loved, they feel secure. The relationships among the children are cordial and warm. They feel emotionally connected to the teacher, then children can achieve miracles. The pedagogic dimension is be, will be very easily achieved. The, uh, the greatest example of this is Finland, where you know, one of the most dramatic transformations Finland made, I hear they were like number 29 in terms of international educational excellence. They moved to number one, mm. you know, and we stayed number 29. What right. was the single most important thing they did? They eliminated all homework. They required yeah. children to work less. And you would be surprised when children were made to work less, they had more time to ask questions, they had more time to wander in the garden, to talk about the trees and the plants. They were not cramming information from a textbook. The teachers were told that the most important thing you need to do is 
is to focus on the happiness of the children. In fact, there's an interview I saw somewhere where the math teacher of the high school is asked, what's the most important thing to you, for you in the math class? He says, for the children to be happy. He's a math teacher. <laughs> right. So there are systems like Finland that actually showed what a dramatic breakthrough in the creativity of children that you can happen if you put less stress for your children, if you give them more leisure, if you encourage them to be creative. I was myself educated in a very strange way. My father believed that his job was to protect me from the schools. And the less time I spent in schools, the better. So every morning he would ask me, son, do you want to go to school or do you want to sleep in? It's your choice. And all the way to high school, he said, spend as little time in the school as possible. I will call in and make it an excused absence for you. Because by the time you get to college, you would have the shit beaten out of you. You'll be so right. mentally exhausted, you will have no energy for learning. I want you to be fresh, preserve your stamina. So I believe that we are overburdening our children through the standardized testing and creating a lot of stress. We have created a factory-like environment. The third reform I want to indicate by invoking Osho's metaphor of the lion in the jungle and the lion in the circus. So my, my dear listeners, I want you to imagine a lion a lion in the jungle, you know, I'm sure you can be, imagine a lion in the jungle roaring in the middle of the night, ah, <laughs> sounding through the night. Now, I want you to change the image. Now, I want you to picture a lion in the circus that's riding its motorcycle on the stage and all the kids are applauding. A lion in the circus that's actually eating with a spoon and fork and everybody is thrilled to see that this lion is so well trained. I want you to see the contrast between the lion in the circus and the lion in the jungle. The lion in the circus is a very well-trained lion. He makes a lot of people happy. He makes the lion tamer happy. He makes the children happy. And most important of all, he makes the uh, owner of the circus happy. Why? Because the trained lion brings in all the revenue and the money. But how many of you can see that a part of that lion in the circus has had to die in order to be born again, to become the lion in the, I mean, a lion in the jungle has had to die in order to become the lion in the circus. The circus owner has basically broken the backbone of the lion in the jungle and made him a docile animal called the lion in the circus. The same thing happens to us in terms of human potential. Children are an ocean of creativity and potential. They're then captured not by a circus, by a circus called the school system. And they're nicely trained to perform long division and to do everything in a certain way. Then you go to college, more of it in college. And then you go to an employer. The employer tells you, this is your knowledge skills that you have to show on the job. So by the time you emerge in the workforce, you're a well-trained circus lion. You can perform the tricks you make everybody happy, but think about the loss of your own potential. You were never meant to be a circus lion. You were meant to be a lion in the jungle. And that speaks to what Zach was saying earlier. Zach was reminding us that we have our talents, our passions and gifts. Never forget that you are a lion in the jungle. You have an ocean of creativity within you. And just because your job description today asks you to do tasks one, two, and three, don't become your job. Don't become your business card. Remember, you're an ocean of human potential. It's very important for you to wake up every day 
and tell yourself, I don't know who the f I am. I don't know who the f I am. Why do I say that? Because most of us have made up this fixed idea of who we are. And for so many of us, we made up that idea based on our kindergarten report card. Your kindergarten, you got a D. You know, I made up a story that I suck at math. Why? Because my chattering monkey, which is the voice in my head, said I suck at math based on my elementary school tests. And I never questioned that. It was only later when I started asking myself, do I really suck at math? Or is it a bunch of crap I've made up based on my elementary school report cards? I realized I don't suck at math. And when I discovered I don't suck at math, I scored in the 90 percentile in the GMAT. I had an inner voice that told me I suck at math. Each of us makes up a fixed notion of who we are, what our capabilities are, and that becomes our biggest barrier to discovering who we truly are. So the new mantra I give you is to start not with telling yourself I know myself, but to recognizing how little of you you know that you are. You don't know yourself. And the final part of my answer, and if my answers are too long, feel free to edit whatever you have to the <laughs> show, centers around the concept of blue ocean versus red ocean. So this was a book written by business professors in uh, INSEAD, the French business school, who said there are two kinds of spaces in the business world, blue ocean spaces and red ocean spaces. Red ocean spaces are highly contested spaces. Like, for example, why do they call it red ocean? Imagine a part of the ocean where everybody's fighting with everybody, stabbing everybody out of hostility, and they're bleeding into the water. The water turns red. Occasionally, you swim away to your part of the ocean where you can swim by yourself. The water is still blue. How does this apply to business? The company Cirque du Soleil. They decided they had to decide what they were going to be. If they were a circus company, they would be in the red ocean waters of circus company. If they were a theater company, they would be in the red ocean water of theater company. They would be competing with somebody. Instead, they said, we don't want to compete. Let's create a new space, a new domain, which we will call circus theater. And we will be completely without competition. In, you know, we are a circus theater company. Till today, they don't have comp any competition. I like to encourage people to apply this to their education and their careers. Most of us are seeking careers based on red ocean ideas. I want to be an accountant. You're going to be competing with thousands of accountants. I want to be a nurse. I'm competing with thousands of nurses. These are red ocean spaces. I want you to be open to blue ocean thinking. Blue ocean thinking will require you to do two things. One, remember that many of the jobs that exist today did not exist 25 years ago. So 20 years from now, there'll be many new jobs that don't even exist today. So you need to be thinking about what are the needs of the world that are not being met yet. There are many needs that the world has that are still unknown. Similarly, you have to look within and see what is it that you could be good at and that you would enjoy, that you could discover. So you have to remind yourself that you don't know who you are. You may have many gifts and talents that you don't know. So when you can marry the two unknowns, the unknown of who you are with the unknown of what the world will need 20 years from now, you can invent and create many new spaces that don't even yet exist. And that is the beauty of blue ocean thinking. I really appreciate your stance on, on education because I've often said the same thing 
to to others and I, and I always feel dumb saying it because I'm on the path so I my stance is very similar to yours the way that I've said it before is that you know going through the education system and then higher education and then maybe even you know further on through graduate school etc cetera, etc cetera, you get very very good at book smarts but you, you don't have street smarts so to speak you know you don't understand so much the world around you you don't understand reality and how things actually work you're so fixated on the book smarts, quote unquote. And, and I always do feel a little dumb saying it because I'm on that exact path, right? I went to undergrad, I'm now in graduate school going for my PhD and have always been on the path of getting a higher education. And so it, it feels counterintuitive to, I don't want to call, I don't want to call it talking down to it or bashing it because it has its value as well. But, but I do, I, I agree with a lot of what you said about how, you know, especially at the early stages with younger children, how it could be detrimental. And I think to, you know, to bring us full circle back to what we were talking about previously, I think that then leads to a breakdown in communication later, because then it's not okay to be wrong. It's not okay to ask questions that you may think are quote unquote, stupid questions and may garner condemnation or may garner people laughing at you or whatever. And that's ingrained from a very young age. I remember in elementary school even, right? No one wants to ask questions because they may be wrong. And if you're wrong, then that's not, at least the perception is, well, at least my perception was, that's not okay. It's not okay. The teachers always tell you it's okay. They always tell you, no, there's no such thing as a stupid question. But then one kid in the back snickers when he when he knows the answer to what you said and and you didn't. And I think that being ingrained from a very early age to where your whole goal is to be able to know the answers to this test, period. Mm. It breeds that sense of not being able to be wrong, not being able to ask questions or, you know, be uncertain, or like you said earlier, you know, be doubtful. And, right. and I do, I, I think that leads to this idea that you're not allowed to communicate, you know, you're not allowed to speak really your views, because if you're wrong, then on these global issues, right, the stuff that we talk about on the podcast, politics, religion, culture, you know, all the big ones like that, if you're quote unquote wrong on politics or quote unquote wrong with religion or culture, it's a very big topic to be wrong about. And if you're quote unquote wrong with any of these things, it has severe implications for, for everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Cancel culture is a big example of that. Right. So I agree. I, I really enjoyed your your views on education and and how standardized testing has kind of bred this factory worker style of education that it, it just doesn't value the right things i don't think right zach well, there's one aspect that i have to at least expound upon um you know me personally i had i had an idea for my thesis since freshman year and they were like oh you don't know what you're talking about you don't you know this there's too much of this that doesn't make sense it's not and senior year we you know we got a portion of it completed Growing up, my entire life, I remember I've always been that one kid who had a question that was, I was, I was quote unquote, the kid that's being extra or the question that no one really necessarily needed to ask, or that wasn't the lesson plan, or that wasn't what we were focusing on. I remember in, in high school in Delaware, uh, a teacher came in teaching a sign language. And then I asked, she said, everybody come up with a word, a regular word. I was like, all right. And I asked her, how do you say charismatic in sign language? And the entire class almost got kicked out by the teacher. They're like, Brandon, why do you always have to do this? Why do you always have to do this when someone comes up? And I felt so this like I was almost disheveled. I was like, what do you, I mean, I'm in school. What do you, am I not supposed to ask a question? 
And it, for me, it almost comes down to, uh, well, not almost, it 100% comes down to my father because um, I grew up so many different schools, so many different homes. And uh, when I eventually lived with my father, he allowed me to pursue everything. So my dad, well, I'm, I'm Jamaican, we immigrated to this country and he pretty much had to follow the books and do exactly what, you know, what convention was. My father instilled in me that idea that you can do anything. Like he gave me the idea that I can do it all. So I, from aspects of music to the instruments, I mean, I didn't even know I wasn't good at pottery until I had the idea mm -hmm. that maybe I should do pottery. And I, I think I'm pretty good at ceramics. There's even the idea of being in neuroscience, like the idea of thought, that's probably like the biggest thing that differentiated myself from at least my peers was that my father instilled in me from when I was a child that it is free to believe in whatever you think you can attempt. Not even that I can do it or can't do it, but you have the right to pursue it. And that alone, I believe, can change generations. Because if you believe that you can shift either your own perspective or what you choose to manipulate, man has taken stone and made skyscrapers from the same concept of being able to pursue whatever you believe in. And I think instilling that, at least bringing it back into the American school system or school system in general, will be the foundation that would lead to a future that you yourself, Param, have spoken about at least over the past couple of decades. Thank you, beautifully articulated. I'm so grateful for what you shared, Brandon. I will remember that always. Wow. The you. incredible gift that your father gave you. With that, we're coming up close to about an hour. At the end of each interview, typically we have two parting thoughts or, or questions that we pose to our interviewees. The first is to allow you to say anything else that you think we missed or anything you think you would like to go in a little more detail um, before we leave, before we end, um, just to give you one last opportunity to say what needs saying and to really cover anything that you think we haven't said. Um, and then afterwards, we want to give you an opportunity to plug something if you wish. Um, so if you have an event or a group that you'd like to plug. We've had people plug their own podcasts. We've had people bring up organizations that they were hoping to have people donate to. Really anything that you would like to, to plug. Um, so I just wanted to turn it over to you, Param, and see first if you thought, if you had any closing thoughts, anything that you thought needed saying. Uh, and then finally, if you had anything that you wish to plug for our listeners. Excellent. Thank you so much. I want to speak to something that I have to offer relevant to your program, you know, saying what needs saying. Uh, I think we are going through a time in American society where there's a tremendous amount of polarization. Mm -hmm. And often we are arguing with each other and we are assuming that we are all living in the same reality. There's a helpful metaphor that I want to bring in from the Indian mystic Osho, who left behind a legacy of over 2,000 books on different aspects of the human condition, who uses the simple metaphor of a rose to talk about how there are multiple realities. If you are a businessman, he says, you're looking at a rose and you're looking at how much can I sell this rose for? If you're a scientist, you're looking at a rose and you're looking at scientifically analyzing the rose by cutting it up, placing it under a microscope, examining its parts and so on and so forth. If you are a artist, you are looking at understanding the beauty of the rose. Perhaps you will write a poem about it. Perhaps you will paint the rose and so on and so forth. 
And if you are a mystic, he says, you will want to celebrate the mystery of the rose. You know, what will happen to the rose tomorrow after it dries up? Where does its beauty come from? And I think the simple metaphor that Osho is discussing highlights how there is not one truth. The truth depends upon where you stand. For the businessman, his truth lies in making a profit. For the scientist, his truth lies in discovering perhaps something about the rose or whatever it is, an intellectual discovery. For the artist, his truth lies in beauty. And for the mystic, his truth lies in expanding and enlarging the celebration of mystery in life. So if we really see this, there is so much diversity. And I just talked about four possibilities, but think about it. Each one of us is so unique, special, and extraordinary, reminds Osho, that there's no human being like me or like you or like any one of our listeners anywhere on the planet. I can search the entire planet and there's only one Zach, there's only one Brandon. There's not another human being exactly like you. When we awaken to that, the, the immenseness of that realization that each one of us is unique, special, and extraordinary, we develop a great respect for the sacredness of other people. And I think that will make a big difference at this tumultuous time in American society where there's so much alienation. You know, to be able to be a source of light. And in fact, I just recently wrote a column in the Cleveland.com called um, um, Being an Enlightened Presence in a World that was That's Falling Apart, that each of us can be an enlightened presence to each other, to be able to heal each other, you know, rather than uh, to dominate each other. In terms of a plug, I would say, well, there is a four-hour video that is on YouTube called Why Life Sucks that I recorded, which is perhaps the best presentation I've ever made. I can't tell you how many calls and emails I received from people that say that that video has helped them heal tremendously at many different levels and be at a greater space of peace with themselves. And um, I don't mind boasting about it because I have delivered it but everything that I present in that video is stolen. You know, it's <laughs> ideas that I've taken from Osho and I give credit to, you know, Osho and uh, to the mystics that I've taken from. So it's not like me. It's not like I have to be embarrassed about promoting it. I think it's a very interesting collection of ideas. I would encourage you to check that out. If you don't have the patience for four hours, that a TEDx talk called Why Life Sucks that I've delivered, which is also on YouTube that you can watch. Otherwise, I do Zoom uh, seminars from time to time. I'm starting a new series on Sundays where I do a half an hour Zoom talk on different topics beginning on 1st November. And, um, you know, if anybody would like to join the Zoom series, you can always send me an email at p-s-r-i-k-a-n-t at bw.edu. P-s-r-i-k-a-n-t, P-s as in Sam, r-i-k-a-n-t at bw.edu but no pressure at all. Um, but in terms of a personal recommendation, I think I would like to tell you the book that seems to make the biggest difference in people's lives. I teach many classes and I prescribe a book called Intimacy. Intimacy by Osho. The author is Osho, spelled O-S-H-O. This is not just about intimacy between people. It's also about the most precious and important forms of intimacy, the intimacy with ourselves internally. And I would encourage you to uh, get that book, Intimacy by Osho. There's another one called Meditation for Busy People, Stress Beating Strategies for People with No Time to Meditate. 
also by Osho. I think they're remarkably helpful books. And uh, for these difficult times, I would recommend them without any hesitation. It's been such a pleasure being with all of you. And I'm immensely grateful to our listeners for taking the time if you stayed this long or even if you didn't. And as well as to uh, my uh, beloved inter esteemed interviewers, Brandon and Zachary, for their beautiful questions and comments that enrich the presentation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Pram. We're thank super you. excited to have you on the show. Oh, of course, this was beyond humbling, at least to listen and to participate. And I felt like I was both a listener and the interviewer is such a almost a, almost a beautiful dichotomy and it, I truly I'm, I'm glad I was able to share this experience with my mentor Zach and I'm hopefully my future mentor you prom <laughs> yeah I will also second your recommendation of the why life sucks video um so for those the, the listeners that aren't already aware um I had first met Param through a class at Baldwin Wallace, a seminar class, Why Life Sucks. And he had spoken about a lot of these topics and a lot of what he has talked about in the in the YouTube video. And it's absolutely eye-opening and worth giving a watch and giving a listen. Uh, if you have listened to this long, if you check the description of the show, I'll inc we'll include links to the videos that Param has suggested, as well as a list of his upcoming seminar series but Prom, absolutely grateful for you coming on the show. Uh, this was a great episode, and I really think that it'll provide the listeners with a lot to think about and a lot of benefit going forward in, in these kinds of discussions. A lot of introspection. Yeah, absolutely. I'm profoundly grateful for the generosity of your listening. Thank you. All right. Well, with that, thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Param, and we'll call thank it a you. night. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Say What Needs and on Instagram and Facebook at Say What Needs Saying for live updates and sound bites from our actual podcast. Don't forget to continue the discussion. Thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>